Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. As we start off, I think it's really important that you guys know something about me. Um, so my name is Rachel Hunka, and the church that I am a part of at home is very responsive. So please do not feel like you need to be quiet. These guys are laughing because they all go there. Um, so if you kind of, how many people were at Jackie Hill Perry's talk? Yes. I should see every hand because she was amazing. Um, but so when Jackie started off, she said, you know, if you hear something you like, I want you to say amen. If you hear something that's challenging you, it kind of, mm-hmm, yeah. So I need you to be responsive and awake with me this morning. Is that cool? Yeah. Great. There were some responses. There's like five of you. But as a whole, all right, so that, that's a general rule this morning, just be responsive. It helps me out to know kind of what's, what you're tracking with. Um, so like I said, my name is Rachel Hunka. Um, my husband and I are church planners in Canton, Ohio. Oh, man, we are definitely in Pennsylvania. First off, we are so in Pennsylvania. Secondly, be responsive, Ohio. Um, anyways, anyways, when I did my, uh, my undergrad, I actually lived in Cleveland, Ohio. And so two places I've lived in my whole life are Canton and Cleveland and Northeast Ohio is the greatest place that there is. And yes, we do all love LeBron James. It's fine that he went to L.A. We all understand it's okay. All right, so just as we're getting started, I want to hear a little bit from you guys. Who, who has been your favorite workshop or main stage speaker? Don't raise your hand. Just say it. Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch is great. I love him. I love him. Who else? Who have you enjoyed? I love Scott Erickson. I follow him on Instagram. He's a great follow. Follow. What? Uh, did anybody go to the Kanye workshop? Anybody here go to the Kanye workshop? Ah, oh, I heard that one was so good. But I also like Kanye. So if that upsets you, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> um, all right. So today, if you did not look at the description, the description, you just came here because your friend dragged you. I fully respect that. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit today about the difference between persona and identity. Um, as we're getting started, a uh, show of hands question. How many people in this room would say that you identify yourself as a Christian? All right. Now that I saw all your hands and I know who all of you are, I need three people. Tell me, what does that mean to you? What does it mean that you are a Christian? Yeah, that's a great that's a great explanation. Two more. What's it mean that you're a Christian? Um, piggybacking on that and adding that I live my life by His words. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'd say that I follow Jesus and participate in the building of the coming kingdom that God has as a plan. Ooh, that's good. You guys all built on each other. That was well done. You are clearly college students. <laughs> um, all right. So, different different question. Um, who would say, and this, all right, keep a real safe zone. You can say whatever you need. Um, who would say that you are intrigued by the idea of Jesus? You're intrigued by the idea of Christianity, but you're not quite all in yet. 
Anybody willing to admit that? All right, I respect that. I respect that. Um, is there anybody who is willing to say why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. I'm trying to get my life started and my career going and getting that focused more for Yeah. That's real. You're a college student. <laughs> All right, so um, I asked both those questions because I have been in both of those places. See, when I, was, when I was in college, I actually uh, walked away from my faith. However, if you would have asked me growing up if I was a Christian, I would have beyond a, a shadow of a doubt given an emphatic yes, absolutely, I am a Christian. I went to church every single week with my family. I loved it. I got baptized at a super young age. It was my own choice. There was no influence um, for my family or any church leaders on that. Uh, I volunteered. I, I loved learning about the Bible. I went to all this stuff with my mom because she was like the holiest person I've ever met. She still is the greatest person I've ever met. Um, but I, I would have told you emphatically upon going to college that I was a Christian. However, you guys can just come on and grab a seat. You don't need to stand in the doorway. Um, <laughs> but when I went to school... I started to realize, like, I actually had some terrible uh, experiences with Christians and specifically within the church. And when I went away to college, I thought that I, first off, I thought I was going to a Christian university, and I really didn't. Um, And then I thought I found a great group of people to hang out with. And then I started to realize, like, actually, these these people are treating me terribly, and they're living in ways that this isn't what I remember learning growing up. This isn't what I remember reading in the Bible. I don't really, this isn't making sense to me. And you know what? This just isn't for me. I sort of made this decision that what I saw in my house and what I saw from my parents growing up was just that my parents happened to be really good people. I didn't think that it really had anything to do with the fact that they were Christians. I figured Christians actually are pretty terrible (laughs) and I just have good parents. And so I walked away from my faith when I was about the age of probably some of you in this room. I was 18. I completely walked away from it. And you'd think that having grown up in the church and having grown up around Scripture and grown up in a Christian home, that that would have been a really hard thing to do. But what I actually learned is it was really easy. It was really, really easy for me to walk away from my faith and to walk away from the church entirely because... What I realized is that I had felt dispensable. I had felt unseen. I had felt unwanted by the church that I had loved. Because um, it's funny that I'm even standing up here talking to you today because actually I am an introvert and I hate large social gatherings. Um, I actually like, really don't like them at all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I see you. Um, and so... I, like, I didn't engage in things like youth group. I never went to a conference, honestly, until I was a vendor for Jubilee nine years ago. That was the first Christian conference I went to. Um, I didn't even go when I was a college student. And so 
because I didn't engage in that sort of way, I sort of felt passed over. I felt like if I wasn't here, it didn't matter. And that was only reaffirmed by my experience when I walked away. Now, looking back, I can see that what I did was I held the sins of broken people as equal with the character of God. That was the big mistake that I made. But because my life and my faith was built in persona, instead of an identity that came from God, it was super easy to walk away from that. See, a life that is rooted in persona is something that crumbles extremely easily. But when we recognize our need for our Heavenly Father, that is when we allow Him to finally speak into our identity. Up to that point in my life, I hadn't recognized that I had an actual need for God. I hadn't recognized that I actually had a need for Jesus. It was sort of this extracurricular activity that I found enjoyment in, but I didn't actually allow to speak into who I was. And so when I walked away, I was just leaving a persona to put a new one on. See, when I went to, when I went to college, I lived it entirely on my own terms. I grew up in a super tight-knit family, so going away and living in the dorms, I'm like, oh my gosh, I get to do literally whatever I want. If I want to eat ramen for dinner every day and get, and get froyo in the calf, there is no one stopping me. And so I did whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. But see, the problem was I didn't know who I was, so I needed the approval of everyone around me. I said this was a keep it real safe zone, so I'm going to do that. What I did when I was in college was I maintained a 4.0 because I needed the approval of my professors, but I also became the person who could run the pong tables and nobody was going to stop me because I needed the approval of my classmates and my professors. So I did it all. I did both. And eventually, that caught up with me. Not in the sense that I got in trouble, but in the sense that that wasn't enough. I was constantly pursuing this approval that was never going to fill the void that I didn't understand why I had. And so after, after my first couple of years, I'm like, you know what? I just need more. I just need more. This isn't enough. And I was pursuing a career in broadcasting. And so I saw this post from one of my professors for an internship that was going to give me a sports and entertainment broadcasting segment. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. Surely that is big enough. That will feel fulfilling to me. And so I I auditioned for this and I got it. And so they let me do all this super cool stuff. I got to run this um, sports and entertainment segment. I got to write my own segments. I got to deliver them. I would go to downtown Cleveland to all these cool spots and record them. It was broadcast in a couple different countries. It was called the Open Student Television Network. And, and it was so much fun. I loved it. I loved getting to do this for my broadcasting class. But you know what? After a while, I'm like, that's cool. But I already did that. Like, I've been doing this for like a year now. Um, I've proved to myself that I can do that. So what's the next thing? What's the next thing that I'm going to do? So, like I told you, I lived in Cleveland. Um, So did LeBron James. And so in my mind, I'm like, all right, I want to pursue a career. I want to be like Aaron Andrews, right? Anybody know who Aaron Andrews is? Or did I just make a reference? No one knows. Okay. 
Erin Andrews. She's this female sports broadcaster for ESPN. And I'm like, I am going to do what Erin Andrews does. So, obviously, I go down to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I'm like, what can I do? This is during LeBron's first reign in Cleveland. So, obviously, in my mind, I'm like, this is the top. If I can get this job, if I can get in here, then there's nothing better than this. So, I work my butt off. I put together, like, all this resume stuff. I get, like what I feel like is going to be the right look. I show up, I audition, and I get this job. So I'm working for the Cavs, and I'm sitting courtside at every single game. Literally, I have a fat head in Cleveland still. Like, like I'm like, I made it, right? Like, LeBron has fat heads, so do I. So I'm I'm feeling myself, right? And I get this job, and I'm like, this is amazing. There's no way that it gets better than this. And what I realized when I was working that job is that it actually just gets more empty. The more accolades that you stack on, but if you don't know who you are, it just gets more empty. You just get more easily influenced. You just seem to constantly be looking for something else to tell you who you are. And the more you let other people tell you who you are, the more confused you're going to get about who you actually are. If you don't hear anything else that I say, remember this. A persona does not sustain you when the realities of life come crashing in. Because that's what happened to me. Eventually, no matter how long we try to stay in school, eventually you either graduate Or get so sick of debt that you quit. Whichever one happens first. I graduated. I graduated because I was afraid of making my parents upset. So I graduated. And you know what happened when I graduated? I had to move. I had to move home. Because I couldn't find a job. Because this job that I thought was so great was no longer there for me. The classmates that I had looked to for for their approval, all of a sudden they were dispersed all across the country, going back home for jobs or, or taking jobs on the entire other side of the world. The professors whose approval I sought so desperately were no longer in my daily routine. So all that I was left with was myself. All I had at that point was me to deal with me. Because the thing about you is that you go with you wherever you go. God stripped away every single title, every single accolade, everything that I was doing to try and prove to the world around me, no one in specific, who I thought that I was. There's this guy named Dwight J. Gilles. He wrote a book and he says, Persona is something that we create and perform publicly through consumer lifestyle choices. We cultivate an image of ourselves on Facebook, Instagram, and other platforms that allow us to present and continually revise a particular self to the world. Massive unease lies below all of this, and with no fixed anchors of identity and belonging, there is no security. Persona is something that is created. But identity is something that is given. See, to just give really specific 
Dictionary.com definition. Persona is an aspect of someone's character that is presented and perceived by others. Persona is an aspect of your character that you present and others perceive. Whereas identity. Identity is the fact of being who or what a person is. Identity is the fact of being who or what a person is. Those are two very different things. Persona is what we put out there for the world. Identity is who we are when the rest of the world doesn't see you. See, God does not give us personas. We curate those. God gives us identities. So let me tell you what I mean by this. Um, we We use another example. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, whatever you want to use, we're going to be in the book of Mark. Mark is the second book in the second half of the Bible where we learn a whole lot more about Jesus. Second book in the second half of the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 5, so that's big number 5. We're going to be in verse 21, so that's little number 21. And in this passage, um, in this passage, Jesus interacts um, in a very specific and beautiful way with a woman with a woman that I think some of us can probably relate to. It says, I'm going to be reading from the NLT. So if your translation is a little different, that's going to throw you off. It's cool to just listen. Mark, two. Mark 5. Mark 5, um, verse 21. So it says, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so that she can live. Jesus went with him, and all of the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. When she had heard about Jesus, so she came to him, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, immediately, the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. All right. Who can tell me the name of the woman in this passage? 
There was a lot of hands. Said you guys identify as Christians. Probably grew up in the church and heard this story. Who can tell me the name of the woman? Nobody knows the name of the woman? Because trick question. They didn't tell us. They didn't tell us the name of the woman. She is a nameless woman. Because you know why? Anybody know why? What? (laughs) Actually, it is about her. But (laughs) I see where you were going with that. I see where you were going with that. Because it's Sunday morning and the answer is always Jesus. So I see where you were going. The story is about her. But listen, the world labeled her. They gave her a persona. They labeled her by what they saw of her. They labeled her by what they perceived of her and did not consider her story important enough to record her name. Do you know whose name we do have? The synagogue leader, because he had status. This woman lived as an outcast, and she was labeled by what people perceived her to be. When we hear this story, when we hear it taught in churches and everywhere else, we call her the bleeding woman. We refer to her by her condition, as opposed to referring to her by her identity. See, society had told her who she was, and she spent 12 years living into this. You see, we can't, we can't read the Bible, we can't read any story and have it mean something that it didn't mean. And so we need to know the context of what is happening. So to get the full extent of what this woman was living in, We need to go back and see what was normal in that time. So in biblical times, if a woman or a person in general was bleeding, they were called what is known as ceremonially unclean. If you want to go back to uh, Leviticus, you'll get a whole lot of rules and things about this. They were called ceremonially unclean. And any person, if they were bleeding, had to be sent to live in a tent until the bleeding stopped. They were there until it was clear that they were bleeding no more, until they had gone through a specific list of cleansing rituals that then deemed them worthy enough to re-enter society. So, this woman, we know, had been bleeding for 12 years. So for 12 years, she had been sent away. But what's more is that she couldn't leave that tent in those 12 years. Because if somebody was considered unclean and they just reached out and touched you, maybe even just bumped you, you were now considered unclean. You had to then be cast out into this same place and go through the same list of cleansing rituals until you were able to re-enter society. So not only was she considered unclean and not only was she sent away, but also everyone avoided her like the plague because nobody wanted to be considered unwelcome in society. Nobody wanted to be considered unwelcome when they went in someplace and they sure as heck didn't want to go through the cleansing rituals that they had to to re-enter society. Think about this. So this is biblical times. So there's no running water. So in order to go through a cleansing ritual and become clean again, you had to go and get your water at a time when nobody else is there because you can't interact with them. 
Then you had to lug this water while you're in whatever unclean condition you're in. So if you're hurt and you've been bleeding, you've lost a whole lot of blood. You don't really have any strength because it's been going on for 12 years. And so somebody else sees her after she's been experiencing this for 12 years and they're like, ooh, don't touch me. Honey, keep that over there because I'm sure as heck not going through what you're going through. Think about how unwanted and unwelcomed this woman felt in the only place she's ever lived. And so for 12 years, she's sent to live away from everyone. My guess, now this is just speculation, but my guess is that the people who also have to enter that tent with her, they also don't want anything to do with her. Because why would you? In a society that believes that people can live and be cursed, why would you? You don't want to share that section of the tent with her. You don't want to share that section of space with her because you don't want to catch whatever she got. You don't want to be a part of whatever curse she's brought on herself. So not only does the world around you not want you, but even the sick don't want you. Can you imagine what she felt She's been called unclean, unwelcome, untouchable, and unwanted. But in one interaction, Jesus blows straight past that persona, and he speaks an identity over her. In verse 34, Jesus looks at this, looks at this woman, and he says, daughter, We don't even know her name. Mark didn't even record her name. But Jesus looked at her and he said, daughter. In one single word, he took all of the things that had been placed on her. And he said, not only are you welcome, not only are you wanted, not only am I going to receive your touch, but I'm going to call you my daughter. I'm going to call you my child. I'm going to tell you that you are part of my family in a world that didn't even want to see you. I'm claiming you as my family. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on and he tells her, your faith, your faith has made you well. She's been told she's cursed. She's been told she brought this on herself. We see from, from in this passage, that she has spent all of her money and all of her time trying to get well. It says that she has seen every doctor. It says that she spent all of her money trying to get well. I mean, think about this. You can't drive through the city without seeing some sort of billboard from a lawyer that says, been in an accident, Disney makes them pay. Like, it's everywhere. We love to prey on vulnerable people. That's what our world does. They did it then too. She gave everything she had trying to be made well. She was a target. And Jesus looks at her and he says, your faith, your faith has made you well. Can you imagine how she felt? He put power back in her hands. He said, I see that you got out of this tent. I see that you took action. I see that you didn't choose to take this label and take this condition and live into it for the rest of your life. You got out of the tent. 
and you believed in who I was, your faith has made you well. But he doesn't stop there. He turns and he looks for her. He says, who touched my robe? Now, side note, I love the disciples. I love the disciples because when Jesus says, who touched my robe, what do they say? They're like, what do you mean who touched your robe, Jesus? This is a crowd. We're walking. There's people everywhere. What do you mean? who? In my mind, just so you know, Thomas is my favorite disciple. And in my mind, it's Thomas, right? Because like Jesus, when when he's resurrected, everybody's like, oh my gosh, Jesus. And Thomas is like, prove it. He's like, show me your hands, Jesus. Like, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. So in my mind, it's Thomas. In my mind, Thomas is like, what do you mean who touched your robe, Jesus? (laughs) Like, that's what he did, right? So, but Jesus knows. He knows that this wasn't just someone bumping into him in the crowd. He knows that somebody reached with intent. Somebody reached their hand out knowing the power of who was standing in front of him. And he says, who touched my robe? And when the disciples try to negate that, it says he kept looking. It says that he kept looking. He didn't look past her. He didn't look through her. He didn't continue looking around like, eh, probably wouldn't you. He looked at her and he looked for her. And then he called her his daughter. This is God incarnate. This is God in human form walking on the earth and he sought the person who felt unworthy. He's got a synagogue leader next to him and he's like, hey, Jairus, chill for a second. I need her. And he looked to the ground because it says that when she heard what he did, she fell to her knees and she wept and confessed. When he looked at her, she fell to the ground. She fell to the ground in awe because she knew. She knew who she had encountered, and she was afraid. Because remember what we said earlier. If you were, in, if you were bleeding, if you were living in that condition, and you touched someone, you made them unclean. So her touch should not have been welcomed. But the Savior of the world looked for an unworthy woman whose name we don't even know. And he looked at her and he called her daughter and he welcomed her touch. In a world that did not want to see her condition, he said, not only do I see you, but I'm seeking you. Not only do I not want you outcast in the corner, but I welcome you to touch me. I welcome you to embrace me because you are my child. He's looking at her and he says, I see how you've struggled I see what you've been through. I see what you've lived through. I see what you've been told. I see everything that you've experienced. And my daughter, you are welcome here. My child, you are welcome here. He takes a persona and he shatters it. And he gives her an identity. But One of the things that I think is the most important that we recognize, all of that is so important. But one of the things that we have to note is that at no point was she seeking recognition. At no point 
Was she seeking recognition? She was seeking Jesus. When, this, when all of this happened, she was going completely against her culture. She was going against everything that she was told she should be doing. And she followed after Jesus. She went after him and she risked so much. She didn't think that this story was going to be talked about 2,000 years later. This didn't happen, and she turned around to the disciples and was like, hey, get my name. (laughs) Write it down. (laughs) She didn't do any of that. She wasn't seeking recognition. Because like our friend in the back said, and this wasn't about her. She wasn't making the story about her. It was 100% about chasing after Jesus. But we can learn so much from her and her actions. Because you know what she didn't do after this? She didn't go back to the tent. She didn't go back there. She didn't chase her condition. She didn't go, mm, that's comfortable. I got used to that. I kind of liked it there. No. She was chasing after Jesus, and he gave her a new identity. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? In the story of the bleeding woman, we see her persona crumble in all of the best ways. It crumbles in all of the best ways. She sheds something negative, and she gains everything that she's been looking for. But for some of us, it's a whole lot harder than that. For some of us, it's significantly harder to figure it out, to figure out what it is that we have been clinging more tightly to than we have been clinging to Jesus. See, for some of us, we aren't even aware that we are seeking idols. We have no idea because honestly, college, college is one of the most selfish periods in all of life. It truly is. You are encouraged to only take jobs that sound appealing as opposed to what pays the bills. You are encouraged to take out a whole lot of loans in the process of that because, hey, you need to figure out who you are. You need to figure out what you're good at and what you like. So don't worry about all these loans. We'll figure those out later. Just worry about you. You're told and encouraged to go on this journey of self-discovery, which isn't all bad, except that it makes the entire world about you. What are you interested in? What is going to serve you best? What classes do you think that you want to take? What do you think that you want to do after school? What internship is best going to serve you in the long run? We become our own idols without even realizing it. Because the world has made it normal, acceptable, and expected for us to worship ourselves. We don't even know that it's happening because it's become such a social norm. Then we have things like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Visco and TikTok and whatever the heck else they're making now. I don't know. I'm 33 years old. I don't even have them all. But we make all these things that make the world even more 
self-centered. Right? These fake securities are not going to sustain us when depression sinks in. They're not going to sustain us when anxiety is keeping us up at night. They're not going to sustain us when loved ones die. They're not going to sustain us when we look outside and literally see our community engaging in a civil war. These things are not going to get us through those times. The bleeding woman wasn't looking for a following. She wasn't looking for a social status. She was looking for nothing more than a savior. And she got that and so much more. So I told you a little bit about my journey away from the church when we started today. Um, But do you know what happened? Do you know what happened when my walls came completely crumbling down around me? When everything that I had built just crashed and burned? I found myself completely alone. Just my cats. I'm not even kidding. I had two cats. I, was, I had me and my cats. And I lost my job. I had a boyfriend that I'd been with all four years of college. We broke up. My friends, my friends, were gone. Because when I took that fall, I took that fall alone. None of them wanted to take responsibility for it, and none of them wanted to help me get back up. They just wanted the persona that I had built. They didn't want the realness of life. I was alone. And so when I moved back into my parents' basement as a very successful 22-year-old with my cats, um, I did the only thing that I could even think to do. And after four years of walking away from the church, I'm like, you know what? I don't got anything else anyways. I guess I'll pray. And so for the first time in literally four years, I prayed and I was like, God, um, I don't remember how to do this. And I don't remember what to say. And I I have nothing elegant to say. Um, So just do something. That's literally what I prayed. I was like, God, do something. And you know what happened? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. You thought I was going to say something amazing. Um, no, literally, for real, though, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Because when you pray, it's not always the heavens parting and God being like, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Like, I only actually saw that happen one time in the Bible for Jesus. Um, so when I prayed, the heavens didn't part. It wasn't a Prince of Egypt moment where, where like, Mariah Carey started singing and the seas parted. Like... That didn't happen. If you've never seen The Prince of Egypt, it's on Netflix. Um, But that's not what happened. That's not what happened when I prayed. There was nothing, like, existential. There was nothing crazy that, like, my parents, like, ran down to the basement and were like, what did you do now? Like, nothing happened. But within my heart, there became a posture of surrender. Because I realized that everything that I had tried failed. I realized that I couldn't do it on my own. And so while God didn't audibly speak to me in that moment, and there wasn't some crazy, miraculous event 
in Canton, Ohio, in that basement, there was a posture of surrender that took place in my heart. And that changed a whole lot. That changed a lot. After that, I started engaging in what I call the discipline of showing up. The discipline of showing up. Now, as an introvert, we know that's hard. So, honestly, it is. Like, you'd, sometimes you don't want to get invited places. It's this, like, weird tension where you're like, I want to be invited because I want to know that you like me, but also I need you to be fine with me not coming. Um, right? That hit somebody over there. I heard that. Um, it's real, though. Like, introverts, that is how we live. And so, I, but I started engaging in this discipline of showing up. Because I started to realize that although I felt alone, God had actually placed some really good people in my life, but I had been shutting them out because I felt inferior. Because I felt like if they knew everything about me, as opposed to just what I put out there, there's no way they would like me. And so honestly, as a test, more than a confession, I started to tell them some of the things I had done. I told them the trouble I had gotten in that had landed me moving home. I told them the things that I had done for the last four years when I walked away from God, thinking this will be the thing that makes them walk away. Because remember, I, d- I didn't think the Christians were actually good people. And so, as, like I said, as a test, not a confession, I told them what I'd done. And do you know what they said? Okay, cool. Like, do you want to come or not? They didn't care. They didn't care. And so I just kept showing up. And as it turns out, the first step to learning who I was, the first step to figure out, figuring out my identity was allowing my persona to shatter. The first step to figuring out who God created me to be was taking the me that I had created and letting it fall to the ground. So as we wrap up, as we close today, I have three questions that I want you to process. So you can write them in a notebook, get your notepad app out on your phone or whatever it's called on a Google device. I don't know. Um, Sorry, I got an iPhone. Um, But pull something out because I want you to write down these three questions. First question, real simple. Well, simple to ask, not simple to answer. What persona have you accepted? What persona have you accepted? accepted. Say it another way. What false identity have you created and are living into? What persona have you accepted or what false identity have you created and are living into? Next question. What idols are in the way of you knowing Jesus better? What idols are in the way of you knowing Jesus better? We'll ask that another way. What have you spent so much time pursuing that it has taken the place of Jesus in your life? So what idols are in the way of you knowing Jesus better? Or what have you spent so much time pursuing that it has taken the place of Jesus in your life? Yeah, what, um, what idols are in the way of you knowing Jesus better? Yeah, what have you spent so much time pursuing that it's taken the place 
of Jesus in your life. And our last question, real simple. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Because the reality is, we can listen to all of these main stage speakers and workshops at Jubilee. We can sit through worship. We can run to the front and have it be amazing. Or we can hide in the back if you're like me and you can just pray by yourself. We can engage in all of these things. We can ask all of these processing questions. But if we do not respond to the question, what are we going to do about it? You might as well have stayed home. If you don't take everything that you are learning and everything that you're taking in and ask the question, what am I going to do about it? Then you're in the same spot that I was as 18 years old, learning and reading for information instead of to let it inform your identity. It's going to be a whole lot easier to live without Jesus if you've never let him inform your identity. So you've got to answer that question. What are you going to do about it? And I just want to end with a bit of encouragement to not process those questions alone. Don't do it alone. Take somebody that you trust. Maybe it's a spiritual leader. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's your campus minister. Whoever it might be. And let them know that you're processing these questions. Because they're going to have some wisdom and some life that they've lived through that you haven't. And they're going to be able to help you answer these questions. Maybe they've seen some stuff in you that you don't even know is there. Maybe they actually look at you and they're like, hey, you have some great leadership characteristics in you. Did you know that? But you're not going to know that unless you sit down and share with someone what you're trying to process and what it is that God is saying to you. So find somebody that you trust and process these questions along with them. Jesus sought out the bleeding woman, and he is seeking you out today in that same way. He held everything that she was looking for. So are you going to allow him to do the same for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is not content leaving us in the tent. We thank you that you are a God who seeks us out when we feel like there's not a person in this world who cares. And Lord, we thank you that you have a unique identity for each and every one of us. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you prompted people in your Holy Spirit to write this down so that we could still be learning about it 2,000 years later. Father, I pray now for every person in this room. Lord, I pray that they leave this weekend knowing that they encountered you and knowing more about you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us about who we are and who you've created us to be. We thank you, and it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.